0: Because titles actually capture the essence of what it is that you're going to speak about. And so I ended up calling it, Ignite Your Life with the Words in the Word. But really, what I want to talk about is how to read the Bible. Because if you're not reading the Bible correctly, then you won't actually extract all the life that there is in the words in the Word. And I've actually brought my big fat Bible with me today because I actually want to talk a little bit about this particular Bible um, a little later on. So what about the Bible? David spoke a little bit about the Bible, I think it was in his first episode on history of the church. But it can't just be another book. For a start, five billion copies have been sold or given away since the early 1800s. And that's actually in the Guinness Book of Records. So that's almost one copy for every person who's living today. There's just over 6 billion people on the planet today. 5 billion copies. That is amazing. Nothing's ever come anywhere near it. I think Mao's Little Red Book, there were about 800 million copies. That's probably the closest to uh, the Bible. And of course, what's in Mao's Little Red Book is, is practically the opposite of um, what's written in the Bible. Currently, about 100 million copies are sold or given away each year. It never finds its way under the New York Times bestsellers list. That's primarily because there are so many different versions of the Bible. And I love going into Kurong and just walking up and down the aisle of Bibles. There are probably 60 or 70 different versions. And there are study Bibles for this and that, study Bibles for men, study Bibles for women, study Bibles for children. The full life spirit study Bible, the life application study Bible, the NIV study Bible. They're just everywhere. But they are all the same book, actually. And because there are so many different versions put out by so many publishers, you don't read it about being a bestseller, read about it being a bestseller because it never finds its way onto the uh, New York Times list of bestsellers. But The Economist newspaper is pretty authoritative and they're not actually known for being very friendly towards Christians. They reckon about 100 million copies of the Bible go out every year. The Bible itself Sixty-six books, 40 authors, written on three continents in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic and Greek, and uh, written over a period of about 1,600 years. There's nothing else in existence quite like it. To date, it's been translated into over 340 languages. In fact, I think it's closer to 350 languages now, and There are well over 2,300 languages in which there's at least a portion of the Bible translated. So a lot of people have put an awful lot of blood, sweat and tears into getting the Bible into the hands of people in their own language. At Ignite Life Connect, we believe that the Bible is God's word to us. Some people have referred to it as the maker's handbook. God created us and in his word, We find out all about who we are, and in fact, who we are supposed to be in Christ. Uh, We believe that in the Bible, we will find all truth concerning the outworking of our Christian life and faith. And it includes instruction on how to flourish in life. And uh, theologians talk about the concept of the inerrancy inerrancy, I should say, of Scripture. In other words, it's breathed by the Holy Spirit into the hearts of the people who wrote it, and it contains God's truth. And you'll find a reference to that in uh, 1 Timothy 3.16. So it's pretty hard to argue that the Bible is just another book. And people like us, of course, think it is the most important book on the planet. And I can say this from my own experience there is a life in the Bible itself because as we read it, our faith is energized, and there are times when we need specific guidance from God when we can actually find it in His Word. And I'm not a great one for just opening up the Bible and dropping your pen on it and saying, Well, there's a scripture for me. But every now and then, I have actually done that when I've been in specific need of wisdom on a matter or guidance on a matter and in fact, the scripture has been there. So God will use it in that way sometimes. That's one of the senses in which the Bible is more like a living word than merely letters (coughs) written on a page. In order to get a bit of a handle on the words in the word, we really need a an overall framework within which to understand what we read uh, in the Bible. So I call this the mega story. Now, there's actually uh, quite a bit of theological debate about whether or not we should call it a mega story or a meta narrative. I'm not actually in favour of calling it a meta narrative because of its postmodern Um, connotations but that really doesn't matter too much and needn't detain us here but we have to understand when we're reading the Bible that there's nothing in the Bible that doesn't fit into the mega story of humanity and if we don't understand the mega story we're going to be like the blind people trying to describe the elephant because we've got one person here who's hanging on to the tail we've got another person here Stroking the trunk, there's someone holding the trunk, ears, and the side of the of the elephant. So what, what do you think we're going to end up with? A, different a whole lot of different perspectives. This fella here is going to have a totally different perspective on what constitutes an elephant as compared with this fella here. You actually need to know what the whole of the elephant looks like before you can really describe it. As my little brother would have said years ago, before you can really and truly understand it. (laughs) He used to get those things back to front, right? So it was really and truly understand it. So broadly speaking, the mega story of humanity is not that difficult. It starts with creation. We go back to Genesis The first few chapters of Genesis, particularly Genesis 1, 2 and 3, are actually concerned with creation. God blessed Adam and Eve. God put them in the garden and God said to them, I'm delegating authority over all that I have created and I'm making you accountable for tending and keeping the garden. We know from Genesis 3 that God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the evening. So he partnered with them. They were co-creators and co-workers with God. That represents God's heart for humanity. And regardless of where we find ourselves and regardless of what um, point we're up to in, say, reading through the Bible in a year or whatever, God's heart was expressed in creation, So he wants to be a co-worker, or sorry, he wants us to be his co-workers and his co-creators. We know, of course, in Genesis 3, the story of the fall. It's interesting, you know, that um, God actually said to Adam and Eve, you can actually eat of every the fruit of every tree in the garden. And then he said, but. Why did he have to do that? Because it, we, we see a God of great love. Who created us, if God loves us, he must give us freedom of choice. So he had to select a tree. He said, you can eat them. You can eat of all of the trees. And then he said, but not this one. They actually chose to eat off all of the trees, including the, but not this one. And so they betrayed love. they, originated sin and that's where we get the idea of original sin from. Then much of the rest of the Bible is the story of redemption, how God called people back to his original purposes that had been thwarted by the fall. I like to split the redemption part of this mega story up into the period of Israel and the law. See, the law was supposed to enable us to to cover our sin. And in fact, we could get an annual ticket for for being covered uh, with sin through the ceremonial aspects of the law. We had to do it every year. And then in the New Testament, of course, the story of redemption continues through the church. And we're part of the church, of course. And finally, we see through all of the prophetic books consummation. That's when in the fullness of time, Jesus returns and actually what he does is he takes us right back to the state we were in at creation. Now that doesn't mean that we're going to go back to the Garden of Eden because the Bible starts in a garden that actually ends in a city. So This command that God gave to Adam and Eve to tend the garden, that's actually about developing all of the resources that God had placed uh, in the earth. And of course, we are doing that and we have been doing that since the beginning of human history. So humanity is still carrying out that command, but imperfectly because of sin. And I think this is really important to keep in mind when we're reading the Bible. And so much of it actually is focused on this idea of redemption, which simply means to be bought back with a price. In the Old Testament, Israel and the law, the price was paid as outlined in the law. And it was usually some kind of sacrifice that included the shedding of blood of an innocent and perfect animal, be that a dove or a lamb or or an oxen or some other animal. In the New Testament, of course, the price was paid by Jesus Christ. The innocent blood that was shed was the blood of Jesus Christ. And in fact, we're taught that Christ actually completed the work of redemption on the cross. That's part of what He claimed when he said, it is finished. But there is this period between Jesus perfecting or completing redemption on the cross and that full consummation when the church has actually got a role to enforce what Jesus completed on the cross. So at this point, Satan is still there with his one third of the angels who rebelled against God. And in fact, one might argue that they're still in rebellion against God so they're twining they're twying they're trying to thwart what Jesus has achieved through his death on the cross. So our role right now is to actually enforce we're a bit like you know the Queensland Police Service government have got legislation in place that's the equivalent of Jesus having won for us redemption but the Queensland Police Service actually enforces all of that legislation. So the role of the church is to enforce what Jesus completed on the cross. Of course when he comes again, we will see what we call the full consummation or the, the full unfolding of everything that Jesus won for us at the cross. So that if you like, that's the elephant. The mega story of humanity, that's the elephant. If you don't understand that, you don't understand what an elephant is. And so it's vitally important when you pick up the Word of God that you keep that in mind. Otherwise, you can build doctrine based on scraps of Scripture. And I hear that all the time. It's just plain wrong. But so many people do it. So once you've got an idea of this mega story of humanity, you then actually need some kind of scaffolding through which to interpret whatever you happen to be reading in the Word of God. My own personal preference is to use what's called the CPA method. Now, you won't find this discussed in theological books. They use different terminology, and uh, I'm not going to go into that. Um, David and Ainsley will have a much better idea of what different approaches to reading the Bible are all about because they're the ones who've got master's degrees in theological studies. I've got a PhD in economics, which doesn't help one little bit. But anyway. Yeah, well, that probably won't help either. (laughs) But I, I like this. This is a really simple method that I call the CPA method, which accountants love because a CPA is a certified practicing accountant. But in this context, we're talking about Get a bit of a handle on the context, find the principle, and then understand an application in your own life or in your own situation. And I love what John Lennox says, in the first instance, be guided by the natural understanding, be that in the context of history, poetry, uh, wisdom, prophecy, or letters, and There's different kinds of writing in the Bible, of course. Some of it is pure history. Some of it is beautiful poetry. Much of that is lost in English translations, but many of the Psalms, for example, are actually very complex acrostics, and there's a certain type of poetry um, embodied in many of the Proverbs, for example. But in the first instance, just read the Bible as it's written. And if you can't understand it, Then you can use more complex methods of trying to understand what the prophetic writings, so-called apocalyptic writings, are all about. But start off reading it as literature and then begin to understand through this idea of context, principle and application. I personally believe this is the safest way to read the Bible. And in particular, it's really important to do what you can to get a bit of a feel for the original context, a little bit about the times that existed when, that, when it was written, something about the people, their culture, because then you'll be able to draw out the principle. And that makes it a lot easier, of course, when you come to the application stage. A lot of people actually try to impose on the Bible today's context. I actually think that's going backwards and it can lead to serious error. So do the best you can to get a little bit of a handle on context. And I just want to share with you the Bible that I use the most. Um, I've boasted before about the number of different study Bibles Jeanette and I have. We've got about 18 of them between us. And then we've got a whole bunch of stuff on our phones as well. So you know what that means, apart from the fact that we like books, it actually means we've got no excuse. We really have no excuse for not knowing what's in the Word of God because we have so much access to His Word. But one particular study Bible that I've found very, very helpful in the context of this CPA method is the New Spirit-Filled Life Bible. And it's been put together by a whole team of authors, and most of them come from a Pentecostal or Evangelical background. And what I like about this Bible is it gives you a lot of hints about the original context in which the various books were written. It tells you a little bit about the people. It also has notes in here on things like the circumstances under which a particular book was written, Very brief discussion about the author. I don't really like to get into deep discussions about who wrote what because I actually don't think it gets us anywhere. And um, there there are books, volumes and volumes, written on whether Paul wrote such and such an epistle. I don't think it matters as much as what's written in the epistle and we need to put a lot of effort into understanding what's written here, not spending a lot of time having a debate about who actually wrote it. But I find this a very, very good Bible. And I, I really recommend that you get hold of a good study Bible. There are many others that do good. Um, Joyce Meyer's got a good study Bible. I know, Helen, that you're a fan of Joyce. She's got a great study Bible. Um, people who like, say, Benny Hinn. I've got Benny Hinn's study Bible on, on healing. Um, the Copelands. I've, we've got Kenneth Copeland's New Testament with all his annotations in it that's a great um, Bible to read as well there's another one called the Life Application Bible that's, that's also very good that was the first one I, um, I ever bought Joel Estein has another one so and, and, and his I think is New King James uh, New Living Translation which is a good translation so so find someone who's been around Christianity for a while and ask them what they're using as a study Bible. The new, there's a new King James study Bible as well. I actually use that one at work as a basis for a lot of the lectures I prepare. That's also very thorough. The good thing about all of these Bibles is you don't go, need a degree in archaeology or ancient history or anything like that in order to get a bit of a handle on what's going on. So I, I use this one. I read it every day, nearly every day. It's a lie. I don't read the Bible every day, but nearly every day I'd read this one. What I want to do now is share with you just three examples of this CPA method. And I've picked them for particular reasons. So I just didn't pluck them out of the air, but I've picked them for particular reasons. The first one is in Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah wasn't popular. You know Why? Because he pointed out to Israel that they were steeped in sin. And uh, nobody, nobody who tells a a godless society that they've fallen into sin is going to be popular. Right? Now, Jeremiah had a secretary. His name was Barak. Well, he wasn't very popular either because Jeremiah actually dictated his words to Israel and to the nations surrounding Israel, he dictated them to Baruch, and then Baruch had to tell the people. I think Jeremiah told them directly sometimes, but Baruch himself was the message bearer. And who knows? We we like to shoot the messenger, don't we? So he was having a pretty tough time. The Bible doesn't say a lot about Baruch, but. There's a chapter in Jeremiah, it's a very short chapter, it's by far the shortest chapter in that book, and it's one of the shortest chapters in the whole of the Bible. Chapter 45, it's only got five verses in it. It's a funny thing because it's out of chronological order, so it it doesn't fit the chronology of the book of Jeremiah. However, you look at the context... Jeremiah is waving his finger at Israel telling them they're, they're sinning and God's actually going to cause them to, um, that they're going to go into exile. They're going to have a pretty tough time actually. They don't like it. Nobody likes it when they're being told they're sinners. So this, is, this chapter is all about Baruch and I will read the whole of it. It's only five verses so you won't fall asleep in that period of time. The word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Barak, son of Neriah, when he had written these words in a book at the instruction of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch: you said, Woe is me now, for the Lord has added grief to my sorrow. I fainted in my sighing and I find no rest. Thus you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built I will break down, and what I have planted I will pluck up, that is, this whole land, the land of Israel. And do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them, for behold, I will bring adversity on all flesh, says the Lord. But I will give you your life to you as a prize in all places wherever I go. So what's this all about? This is about God saying to Barak, mate, don't get too upset. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. But I am going to protect you. So you see, the people wanted to kill Jeremiah. They wanted to kill Barak. I know how I would feel if someone wanted to kill me. I'd feel even worse if I knew a whole lot of people wanted to kill me. But God's saying, you know, Settle down, I will let you live. So I'm going to protect you so that you will live. It's a great book to read actually because I think it might have something to say for a country like Australia. And and when I read it, I think of my friend Lyle Shelton who heads up Australian Christian Lobby and, and how many enemies he now has, including many in the media who have written Dreadful things about him. I mean, real. if if the Human Rights Commission was actually a Human Rights Commission, they would have a lot of people in jail now because of what they've said about Lyle. But of course, he's a Christian, so the Human Rights Commission couldn't care less. But you know, someone like him can read that chapter and say, you know what I'm doing actually is I'm bringing God's word to this nation and the encouragement for me is that he will let me live in this land. He will put a hedge of protection around me and I will live in this land. I think the other great um, application is encouragement for two ICs. You know, Barak was two IC to Jeremiah. He received as much hate as Jeremiah did. He didn't perhaps necessarily look forward to the same reward as Jeremiah But God, nevertheless, comforted him and strengthened him by what he said to him. So there's a context for that short chapter. There's a principle in here. Yep, you're going to suffer, but God is going to protect you. And the application is, you know what, that gives me the courage at times to stand up for God's principles for what is right, knowing that he will protect me. Certainly, in the end, we win. And we've um, spoken about that before. So that's, you, what I love about this, you see, is you can pick up that chapter and think, what on earth is it in the Bible for? But when you start thinking a little bit about the context, find a principle, and then think of application, suddenly it has meaning and I've certainly been in situations where I've needed that kind of encouragement. Here's another example. This is one I absolutely love. Ephesians 6, 10-17, it's about the armour of God and I see Ainsley's um, finding that on her phone. Is that right? Yep. You wouldn't be Facebooking, eh? No. Oh, of course you wouldn't. No, I know you wouldn't Facebook. <laughs> I know you wouldn't. Facebook. I've seen people in church Facebooking because I used to do sound and I used to be higher up than everybody else, and I could see what they were doing on their iPads. And half of the time, people were on Facebook, they weren't taking notes from the, the preacher at all. <laughs> anyway, that's all good. I won't read the whole of it because this is a fairly well known passage, passage in Ephesians, but it's about putting on. Uh, The armour of God. And I've heard this um, discussed in church many, many times. So what's what's the writer of Ephesians saying? Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Then it goes on talking about the various elements of the armour. And of course, most of us have probably heard um, preaching along those lines. But I just want to look at it from a slightly different angle today, which I think is consistent with this notion of reading the Bible in terms of that whole mega story of humanity. You see, if you go back to Hebrews 6, that's where God actually made a covenant with Abraham. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. And God made certain promises to Abraham. Now, in that culture, a covenant... Was actually made following a specific um, set of behaviours. Now, among other things, a sacrificial animal would be um, cut in half, the halves were were, were placed apart, and uh, the blood was shed, and you would actually, the the two uh, members of the covenant would actually walk between the two um, halves of the, the animal's carcass. But another thing they actually did was to exchange clothing. Right? That that boggles a little bit at that, doesn't it, eh? Because um, well, like if I exchange clothing with some people it mightn't quite fit. <laughs> but this was one of the things that happened. Now, if you have a look at Hebrews six, thirteen to fourteen, and it's actually referred to, uh sorry, it Hebrews six um thirteen to fourteen refers back to Genesis twenty-two, sixteen to seventeen. See When God made the covenant with um, Abraham, he couldn't find anyone to swear that covenant with. So he swore it by himself. right? And the reason is this. It was God who initiated the covenant. God initiated the covenant. He had to find someone to swear by. There was no one higher than himself, so he swore by himself. Okay? Now... The implication of that in terms of us putting on the full armour is is this. God doesn't take ours, but he gives us his. God doesn't take ours, but he gives us his. Now you think about that for a moment. Put on the full armour of God. He has given us his armour. Wow. I mean, wow! (laughs) Wow! meditate on that, go home and meditate on that this is the God who made covenant there was a covenant with Adam and Eve covenant with Abraham, there are other covenants covenant with Noah, there's the covenant with Israel and then there's the new covenant, that's the covenant with us as followers of Jesus Christ God knows about covenant. We were in no position to covenant with him before we became Christians. He's the guy who initiated that covenant through sending his son Jesus and sacrificing him. And in Ephesians, we're exhorted, you know, to fully consummate the covenant. And we do that by taking his armour. Now God doesn't want ours, why is that?
1: <laughs> it's rubbish.
0: <laughs> it's not going to do any good. But he says here, you, you, it's okay, I know how covenants work. I can't take yours, but I'm giving you mine. I, I'm, I'm almost speechless. When I'm, I'm never totally speechless, of course you know me, but I'm almost speechless when I think about that. So understanding a little bit about the context of covenant, knowing that historically, when God made the covenant with Abraham, that he swore by himself, and then placing that passage in Ephesians in the context of the mega story, we can derive unbelievable power from the words in the word in fact there's enough power there to ignite your life you reckon Mm. (laughs) it is amazing now I want to go on to another one because we haven't got all day well we have got all day but there are other things that we want to do this is another one this this is another one that I, I just when I get into the word of God you know my like it blows my mind it's How anyone could ever say it's just a good book is way beyond me. I can't understand that. But Psalm 1, how many people have read Psalm 1 a zillion times? It's a beautiful psalm. Again, it's not very long, actually. But let me read this. And the reason I'm raising this one is I had a conversation with one of my colleagues at work the other day. Now, she and her husband actually passed her a Messianic um, Jewish um, church service on on Saturdays. And every now and then we, we just get to talk a little bit about the Hebrew understanding of the Bible. So Psalm 1 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Wow. Now, our natural position, I suppose, is to think of the ungodly as those dirty, rotten, scoundrel sinners out there who are so obvious by what they say and do. But you know what? A Hebrew understanding of that word ungodly, it's sometimes translated as wicked, depends on the translation that you use, are simply those who are not following God or in New Testament context, are not followers of Jesus Christ. And actually it refers to our source of news or more broadly speaking, information. Now where do most people get their information from today? Media. Pardon? Media. Yes, actually, I did look for a, a social media um, image there, but I, I couldn't find one that I could use without breaching copyright, and I prefer not to breach copyright if I can. Well, I don't breach copyright. That's my, my principle. But do you know what? So many people today actually <coughs> form their view of the world through the media. Now, most people in the media, now there are lots of Christians in the media, please don't get me wrong, I personally know of um, quite a few Christians who are in the media. But on the whole, the, the people who are providing the news, who are filtering the news, who are providing information on a whole range, of areas, they are not people who are following Jesus Christ. So they don't process any of the information in a biblical context. They don't process any information in the context of the mega story of human history. And they certainly don't place it into that CPA type context, the the biblical context, biblical principle and application of principle. And this applies to Christians as much as it applies to anybody else, where they actually form their view of the future based on what they see in the media. I can just give you one example, which might actually get me into a bit of trouble, actually. So there could be someone who listens to the uh, recording of this discussion point who might disagree with me. But I remember having a bit of a debate. Actually, it was quite a Quite a, it was more than a bit of a debate, it was a pretty serious debate about global warming. Now, this is not about whether or not there is global warming or whether or not the um, temperature of the earth is rising, but it's actually about the end of human history as we know it. And there are Christians who believe it's going to happen through environmental catastrophe. And so they are unbelievably concerned about global warming. Now, because I know a little bit about modelling, I probably don't have as much confidence in the scientific models as many other people would, but I'm also aware that there's some research that produces contrary results to a lot of the other research, and so I prefer to take a scientific approach, which is we keep a fairly open mind about it, and we don't allow it to a- actually ruin our lives in the way that 40 or 50 years ago people did over the world coming to an end through a nuclear holocaust, which was what the, the vision was during the, the, um, the-, the Cold War. You know, when I was a teenager, the world was going to end with a nuclear war. Now it's going to end with environmental disaster. Pick up the word of God. Amen. How's the world going to end? How's human history going to end? Return of Jesus Christ. Okay? Oh, we are shut. Now one of the... <laughs> so one of the things I said in this debate was there is not a shred of evidence in the Bible that the world is going to end or that the second coming of Jesus is going to be precipitated by environmental disaster. No, it's spiritual. It's political, and yes, a spiritual battle. So we can fill our heads with the news and we fill our heads with news of this conspiracy and that conspiracy, like there's conspiracy theories surrounding the um, presidential election in the United States at the moment, whole range of things. People get their information from the internet, social media. This is where you need to get your information, particularly when it pertains to the end of the world, to the end of human history as we know it. What does is, what is the mega story of human history say? It's going to end with consummation of everything that Jesus Christ won for us on the cross at Calvary. So should we be concerned about the environment? Absolutely. Because way back in Genesis 1, God appoints us as stewards of all he had created. So yes, we must steward the resources of the world wisely. Should we be concerned about peace? Yes, we must, because blessed are the peacemakers. So we should do all we can to live at peace with one another. We should pray for our government. But that's a very different approach to life than to worry ourselves sick or worry ourselves literally to death because of what we see in the media. And there's another psalm, Psalm 127, verse 2, talks about eating the bread of sorrows. That's what many people do. Why would we want to do that as Christians? We don't have to. We can actually eat the bread of joy or the bread of life, yes, that we find in the Word of God. And I, I know personally God spoke to me many, many years ago and he said, Rod, what I want you to do is read the Bible First thing when you get up every morning, last thing before you go to sleep every night. Why is that? So I start and end my day filled with the truth of his word, not someone else's interpretation of the signs of the times. Now I could I could talk for weeks on this, of course, with example after example after example after example. Another quick one that I don't usually read about either in commentary Bibles and I've never heard theologians talk about. You look at the Great Commission in Matthew 28. See, what, what did Jesus do there? Jesus said, I'm going to be with you, right? I'm delegating you authority and the accountability. To go out and to make disciples of the nations. There's an incredible parallel between that and Genesis 2. When God says to Adam and Eve, I want you to tend the garden. You know why? Because God's heart there was to have the earth filled with the garden. Right? Because that's that blessing of multiplication. And to have the earth filled with people like him. And he used to walk in the garden in the cool of the evening and converse with them. He was never going to leave them. What happens in Matthew 28, it's a parallel. It's an analogue to what happened way back in the Garden of Eden. Because God says, here I'm delegating you authority and accountability. I'm also empowering you and I'm never going to leave you. What do I want? I want the world filled with people like me but I also want all the creation redeemed so it's there Matthew 28 Genesis 1 2 and 3 there's a parallel there you only get that parallel really I think if you've got this mega story of human history at the front of your mind and if you constantly ask yourself what's the context What principle can I draw from this and how might it apply to me in my own circumstances today?